60. See the pikemen didn't make the dirt that makes the road, and where he justly refuses to fork out tuppence hoppany. It's where he true Sir Eddard says that the t'other taxes must be paid, as what's to pay the ministers, but it's highly unreasonable that pikemen is to be put alongside of prime ministers, legitable winders, and purveyors of promiscuous poultry. Had that great man succeeded in bilking the toll, what a thing it would have been for us. Gatter is but 3D, a pot, and that's the price of a reasonable pike ticket. That winnerable and winnerotted liquor as bears the cognominium of old Tom is comatable for the wallery of them wary browns. But Sir Eddard has failed in his bold endeavor the pikes has it. Shame, it's for us to reward him. I therefore proposes that a collection of turnpike tickets is made, and then elegantly mounted, framed and glazured, and presented to the right honorable baronite. Immense applause, Mr. Alec Bell Jones, the celebrated early tater and spring engine dealer seconded the proposition, at the same time suggesting that old pike tickets would do as well as new UNs, and everybody knowed that second-hand tom pike tickets weren't very valuable, so the thing could be done handsome and reasonable. A collection was immediately commenced in the room, and in a few minutes the subscription included the whole of the Metropolitan Trusts, together with three Waterloo Bridge tickets, which the donor stated could one be at for axing for. A deputation was then formed for the purpose of presenting this unique testimonial when completed to Sir Edward Natchbull. It is rumored that the lessees of the gates in the neighborhood of the metropolis are trying to get up a counter-meeting. We have written to Mr. Levy on the subject. Musical news news. We perceive from a foreign paper that a criminal who has been imprisoned for a considerable period at Presburg has acquired a complete mastery over the violin. It has been announced that he will shortly make an appearance in public. Doubtless. His performance will be a solo on one string. The Physiology of the London Medical Student. 10. The Termination of the Hall Examination. The morning after the carousal reported in our last chapter, the parties thereat assisting are dispersed in various parts of London. Did a modern Esmodus take a spectator to any elevated point from which he could overlook the great metropolis of Mr. Grant and England just at this period? When Aurora has not long called the Sunday who rises as surlily as if he had got out of bed the wrong way, he would see Mr. Rapp ruminating upon things in general whilst seated on some cabbages in Covent Garden Market, Mr. Jones taking refreshment with a lamplighter and two cabmen at a promenade coffee stand near Charing Cross, to whom he is giving a lecture upon the action of Eritrea in paralysis, jumbled somehow or other with frequent asseverations that he shall at all times be happy to see the aforesaid lamplighter and two cabmen at the hospital or his own lodgings, Mr. Manhook, with a pocket handkerchief tied round his head, not clearly understanding what has become of his latchkey, but rather imagining that he threw it into a lamp instead of the short pipe which still remains in the pocket of his pea jacket, and, moreover, finding himself close to a London bridge, is taking a gratuitous dose in the cabin of the Boulogne steamboat, which he ascertains does not start until eight o'clock, whilst Mr. Simpson, the new man, with the usual destiny of such green productions thirsty, nauseated, and, coming round, is safely taken care of in one of the small private and furnished departments which are let by the night on exceedingly moderate terms an introduction by a policeman of known respectability being all the reference that is required in the immediate neighborhood of the Bow Street Police Office. Where Mr. Muff is it is impossible to form the least idea, he may probably speak for himself. The reader will now please to shift the time and place to 2 o'clock p.m. in the dissecting room, which is full of students, comprising three we have just spoken of, except Mr. Simpson, 
A message has been received that the anatomical teacher is unavoidably detained at an important case in private practice, and cannot meet his class today. Hereupon there is much rejoicing amongst the pupils, who gather in a large semicircle round the fireplace, and devise various amusing methods of passing the time. Some are for subscribing to buy a set of four corners, to be played in the museum when the teachers are not there, and kept out of sight in an old coffin when they are not wanted. Others vote for getting up sixpenny sweepstakes, and raffling for them with dice the winner of each to stand a pot out of his gains, and add to the goodly array of empty pewters which already grace the mantelpiece in bright order, with the exception of two irregulars, one of which Mr. Rapp has squeezed flat to show the power of his hand, and in the bottom of the other Mr. Manhook has bored a theramen with a red-hot poker in a laudable attempt to warm the heavy that it contained. Two or three think they had better adjourn to the nearest slate table and play a grand pool, and some more vote for tapping the preparations in the museum, and making the porter of the dissecting room intoxicated with the grog manufactured from the proof spirit. The various arguments are, however, cut short by the entrance of Mr. Muff, who rushes into the room, followed by Mr. Simpson, and throwing off his Macintosh cape, pitches a large fluttering mass of feathers into the middle of the circle. Hello, Muff, how are you? My bean what's up, is the general exclamation. Oh, here's a lark, is all Mr. Muff's reply. Lark, cries Mr. Rapp, you're drunk. Muff you don't mean to call that a lark. It's a beautiful patriarchal old hen, returns Mr. Muff, that I bottled as she was meandering down the muse, and now I vote we had her for lunch. Who's game to kill her? Various plans are immediately suggested, including cutting her head off, poisoning her with morphia, or shooting her with a little cannon Mr. Rapp has got in his locker, but at last the majority decide upon hanging her. A gibbet is spadily prepared, simply consisting of a thigh bone laid across two high stools, a piece of whipcord is then noosed round the victim's neck, and she is launched into eternity. As the newspapers say Mr. Manhook attending to pull her legs, depend upon it that's a humane death, remarks Mr. Jones. I never tried to strangle a fowl but once, and then I twisted its neck bang off. I know a capital plan to finish cats though, throw it off put it up let's have it, exclaim the circle, well, then, you must get their necks in a slip knot and pull them up to a keyhole, they can't hurt you, you know, because you are the other side the door, oh, capital quite a wrinkle, observes Mr. Muff, but how do you catch them first, put a hamper outside the leads with some valerian in it, and a bit of cord tied to the lid, if you keep watch, you may bag half a dozen in no time, and strange cats are fair game for everybody, only some of them are remuens to bite. At this moment, a new Scotch pupil, who is lulling himself into the belief that he is studying anatomy from some cheap size by himself in the museum, enters the dissecting room, and mildly asks the porter what a heart is worth. I don't know, sir, shouts Mr. Rapp, it depends entirely upon Watts trumps, whereupon the new Scotch pupil retires to his study as if he was shot followed by several pieces of cinders and tobacco pipe. During the preceding conversation, Mr. Muff cuts down the victim with a scalpel, and, finding that life has departed, commences to pluck it, and perform the usual post-mortem abdominal examinations attendant upon such occasions. Mr. Rapp undertakes to manufacture an extempore spit, from the rather dilapidated umbrella of the new Scotch pupil, which he has heedlessly left in the dissecting room. This being completed, with the assistance of some wire from the ribs of an old skeleton that had hung in a corner of the room ever since it was built, the hen is put down to a roast, 
presenting the most extraordinary specimen of trussing upon record, Mr. Jones undertakes to buy some butter at a shop behind the hospital, and Mr. Manhook, not being able to procure any flour, gets some starch from the cabinet of the lecturer on materia medica, and powders it in a mortar which he borrows from the laboratory, to revert to cats, observes Mr. Manhook, as he sets himself before the fire to superintend the cooking, it strikes me we could contrive no end to fun if we each agreed to bring some here one day in carpet bags, we could drive in plenty of dogs, and cocks, and hens, out of the back streets, and then let them all loose together in the dissecting room, with a sprinkling of rats and ferrets, adds Mr. Rapp, I know a man who can let us have as many as we want, the scrimmage would be immense, only I shouldn't much care to stay and see it, oh that's nothing, replies Mr. Muff, of course, we must get on the roof and look at it through the skylights, you may depend upon it, it would be the finest card we ever played, how gratifying to every philanthropist must be these proofs of the elasticity of mind peculiar to a medical student surrounded by scenes of the most impressive and deplorable nature in constant association with death and contact with disease his noble spirit, in the ardor of his search after professional information, still retains its buoyancy and freshness, and he wreaths with roses the hours which he passes in the dissecting room, although the world in general looks upon it as a rather unlikely locality for those flowers to shed their perfume over. By the way, Muff, where did you get to last night after we all cut? inquires Mr. Rapp. Why, that's what I am rather anxious to find out myself, replies Mr. Muff, but I think I can collect tolerably good reminiscences of my travels. Tell us all about it then, cried three or four. With pleasure only let's have in a little more beer, for the heat of the fire in cooking produces rather too rapid in evaporation of fluids from the surface of the body. Oh, blow your physiology, says Rapp. You mean to say you've got a hot copper so that I send for the precious bomb, and then fire away, and accordingly, when the beer arrives, Mr. Muff proceeds with the recital of his wanderings, love and hymen, cupid that charming little garçon, when free, is amorous, brisk, and gay, but when he snoozed by hymen's parson, snores like Gleanald, or flies away, our city article. An alarming forgery of Mendicity Society's tickets has been discovered in Red Lion Square, and has caused much conversation at the doors of most of the gin palaces. Our readers are probably aware what these tickets are, though, being a particular class of security, there is not a great deal publicly done in them. They are reissued to certain subscribers, who pay a guinea per year towards housing a secretary and some other officers in a moderate-sized house, in the kitchen of which certain soup is prepared which is partaken of by a number of persons called the board, who are said to taste it and see that it is good, and if there is any left, which may occasionally happen, the poor are allowed to finish it. This valuable privilege is secured by tickets, and these tickets are found to be forged to a very large amount some say indeed to the amount of 14.000 basins. It is not usual to pay off these soup tickets, but a sort of interest can be had upon them by standing just over the railings of the house in Red Lion Square when the secretary's dinner is being cooked or served up, and a certain amount of savory steam is then put into circulation. The house has been besieged all day with innocent holders, who, on giving their tickets in cannot get them back again. The genuine tickets are known by the stamp, which is a soup plate rampant, and a spoon argent, the latter being the emblem of the subscribers. A great deal is said of a new company, whose object is to take advantage of a well-known fact in chemistry. It is known that diamonds can be resolved into charcoal, 
as well as that charcoal can be ultimately reduced to air, and a company is to be founded with the view of simply reversing the process, instead of getting air from diamonds. Their object will be to get diamonds from air, and in fact the chief promoters of it have generally drawn from that source the greater part of their capital. The whole sum for shares need not be paid up at once, but the directors will be satisfied in the first instance with 10%, on the whole sum to be raised from the adventurers. It is intended to declare a dividend at the earliest possible period, which will be directly the first diamond has been made by the new process. Con. ISIBDHORP and SBULTZ. Why are batteries and soldiers like the hands and feet of tailors? Because the former make breaches breaches, and the latter pass through them. The romance of a teacup. Sip the third. Go sip. That hour devoted to thy vesper, service, dulcet exhilaration. Glorious tea. I deem my happiest. How so's are ice worth, as to mind or morals, elsewhere, over the I am a perfect creature, quite impervious to care, or tribulation, or on we in fact, I do ognize to the unutter devotion even to the bread and butter, the homely kettle hissing on the bar urns I detest, irrelevant pomposities the world beyond the window blinds, as far as I can thrust it this defines what, cause it, is what woe that rhyme such scene of bliss must march, but rhyme, alas! is one of my atrocities, in common with those bards who had the scratch of writing, and are all right with catmuck. How Nancy Snickles was the village pride, how will, her sweetheart, went to be a sailor, how much at parting Nancy Snickles cried, and how she snubbed her funny friend the tailor, how William boldly fought and bravely died, how Nancy Snickles felt her senses fail her, then comes the sad day Numan nowadays it is not virtue dominant that days, such tales, in this, the post-octavo age, our novelists incontinently tells us tales, wherein lovely heroines engage with highwaymen, good-looking rogues but callous, who go on swimmingly till the last page, and then take poison to escape the gallows tales, whose original refinement teaches the pride of eloquence in dying speeches, what an apotheosis have we here, what equal laws th awards of fame dispose. Capture or fort assassinate appear alike be chronicled in startling prose alike be dramedies down here as clever crying to virtue. That us odds be grouped with all the criminals at large. From burglar Shepard unto fiend Lafarge. The women are best judges after all. And Sheridan was right. And Plaviari, to their decision all things mundane fall. From court to counting house. From square to dairy. From caps to chemistry. From track to shawl. And then these female verdicts never vary. In fact, on lap dogs, lovers, ball, and bodices, there are no critics like these mortal goddesses. To please such readers, authors make it answer to trace a pedigree to the creation of some old Saxon peer, a monstrous grandsire, whose battles tell, in print, to admiration but I unfortunate, had never once a mysterious hint of any great relation, I know whether Shem or Japheth right sir was my progenitor nor Kira Kreitzer, for, Though there's matter for regret in losing an opportune occasion to record the feats in gambling, dueling, seducing conventional acquirements of a lord still I have stories startling and amusing, which I can tell and vouch, upon my word, to anybody who desires to hear and but don't be nervous, pray, you needn't fear and, but what of my poor high son all this while, she saved the gardener by a timely kiss, few husbands are there proof against a smile, and teapots raging dirt no more than this, God. Reader, gentle, moral, free from guile, think you she did so very much amiss. She was not lovesick for the fellow quite she merely thought of him from morn till night. 
a state of mind how much by parents dreaded, by those outrageous parents, English mamas, who scarcely own their daughters till their wedded out postulant of patent chubs and brahmas, and eyes the safest locks when locks are needed, and abigails, and homilies, and grammars, and other antidotes for detrimentals, it established fine gentlemen enlist with randals, but this could not stop here, nor did it stop for both were anxious for an explanation, and in the harem's grating was a gap, whence high son peeped in modest hesitation, while on his spade the gardener would prop himself, and issue a looks of adoration, until it happened, like a lucky rhyme, each for the other looked at the same time, then fell the gardener upon his knees, and kissed his hand in manner most devout so high son couldn't find the heart to tease the poor dear man by being in a pot, besides, she might go walk among the trees, and not a word of scandal be made out, she thought a very little more upon it, then smiled to Su Chong, and put on her bonnet, Punch and the Swiss Giantess, Sheriff's Court, Wednesday, Bonbon versus Punch, this important cause came on for trial on Wednesday last, that it has not been reported in the morning papers is doubtless to be attributed to the most reckless bribery on the part of the plaintiff, he has, no doubt, sought to hush up his infamy, the defendant has no such contemptible cowardice, hence a special reporter was engaged for punch, the trial is given here, firstly, for the beautiful illustration it affords of the philosophy of the English law of crim, con, and secondly on a principle for punch as principles laid down by the defendant in his course of public life, to show himself to the world the man he really is, in pursuit of this moral and philosophical object, should the waywardness of his genius ever induce punch to cut a throat, pick a pocket, or, as a Middlesex magistrate for punch has been upon the bench many a year, to offer for sale a tempting lot of liberty to any competent captive, should punch rob as a vulgar old Bailey delinquent, or genteelly swindle as an aldermanic shareholder, in each and every of these cases there will, on discovery, be the fullest report of the same in Punch's own paper, Punch being deeply impressed with the belief that an exhibition of the weaknesses of a great man is highly beneficial to public philosophy and public morals, Punch now retires in favor of his own reporter, as early as six o'clock in the morning, the neighborhood of the court presented a most lively and bustling aspect, carriages continued to arrive from the West End, and we recognized scores of ladies whose names are familiar to the readers of the court journal and morning post. Several noblemen, amateurs of the subject, arrived on horseback. By eight o'clock the four sides of Red Lion Square were, if we may be allowed the metaphor, a mass of living heads. We owe a debt of gratitude to Mr. Davis, the respected and conscientious officer for the Sheriff of Middlesex, that gentleman, in the kindest spirit of hospitality allowing us six inches of his doorstep when the crowd was at its greatest pressure. Several inmates of Mr. Davis's delightful mansion had a charming view of the scene from the top windows, where we observe bars of the most picturesque and moyen age description. At ten minutes to nine, Mr. Charles Phillips, counsel for the plaintiff, arrived in Lamb's Conduit Passage, and was loudly cheered, on the appearance of Mr. Adolphus, counsel for the defendant. A few miscreants in human shape essayed groans and hisses, they were, however, speedily put down by the new police. We entered the court at nine o'clock. The galleries were crowded with rank, beauty, and fashion. Conflicting odors of lavender, musk, and the de cologne emanated from ladies on the bench, most of whom were furnished with opera glasses, sandwich boxes, and species of flasks, vulgarly known as pocket pistols. In all our experience we never recollect such a thrill as that shot through the court, 
when the crier of the same called out bonbon. Punch! Mr. Smith a young yet rising barrister with green spectacles with delicate primness opened the case. A considerable pause, when Mr. Charles Phillips, having successfully struggled with his feelings, rose to address the court for the plaintiff. The learned gentleman said it had been his hard condition as a barrister to see a great deal of human wickedness, but the case which, most reluctantly, he approached that day, made him utterly despair of the heart of man. He felt ashamed of his two legs, knowing that the defendant in this case was a biped. He had a horror of the mysterious iniquities of human nature seeing that the defendant was a man, a housekeeper, and, what in this case traveled his infamy, a husband and a father, gracious heaven, when he reflected but no, he would confine himself to a simple statement of facts, that simplicity would tell with a double knock on the hearts of a susceptible jury, be afflicted, the agonized plaintiff was a public man, he was, until lately, the happy possessor of a spotless wife and an inimitable spring van, it was was a union assent to by reason, smiled on by prudence, Mr. Bonbon was the envied owner of a perambulating exhibition, he counted among his riches a spotted boy, a New Zealand cannibal, and a Madagascar cow, the crowning rose was, however, to be gathered, and he plucked, and as he fondly thought made his own forever, the Swiss giantess, Mr. Bonbon had wealth in his van the lady had wealth in herself, Hence it was, in every respect, what the world would denominate an equal match. The learned counsel said he would call witnesses to prove the blissful atmosphere in which the parties lived, until the defendant, like a domestic hippus tree, tainted and polluted it. That van was another Eden, until Punch, the serpent, entered. The lady was a native of Switzerland, yes, of Switzerland. Oh, that he the learned gentleman could follow her to her early home that he could paint her with the first blush and dawn of innocence, tinting her virgin cheek as the morning sun tinted the unsullied snows of her native Jungfrau, that he could lead the gentlemen of the jury to that Swiss cottage where the gentle Felicite such was the lady's name lisped her early prayer that he could show them the mountains that had echoed with her songs since made so very popular by Madame Stockhausen that he could conjure up in that court the goats whose lacteal fluid was wont to yield to the pressure of her virgin fingers the kids that gambled and made holiday about her the birds that whistled in her path the streams that flowed at her feet the avalanches with their majestic thunder that fell about her would he could subpoena such witnesses then would the jury feel what his poor words could never make them feel the loss of his injured client on one hand would be seen the simple Swiss maiden a violet among the rocks a mountain of an ill and pearl a rainbow of the glaciers a creature pure as her snows, but not as cold, and on the other the fallen wife a monument of shame. This was a commercial country, and the jury would learn with additional horror that it was in the sweet confidence of a commercial transaction that the defendant obtained access to his interesting victim. Yes, gentlemen, said Mr. P. It was under the base, the heartless, the dastardly excuse of business that the plaintiff poured his venom in the ear of a too confiding woman. He had violated the sacred bonds of human society the noblest ties that hold the human heart the sweetest tendrils that twine about human affections. This should be shown to the jury. Letters from the plaintiff would be read, in which his heart or rather that ace of spades he carried in his breast and called his heart would be laid bare in open court. But the gentlemen of the jury would teach a terrible lesson that day. They would show that the socialist should not guide his accursed bark into the tranquil seas of domestic comfort, and anchor it upon the very hearthstone of conjugal felicity. No as the gentlemen of the jury were husbands and fathers, as they were fathers and not husbands, as they were neither one nor the other, 
but hoped to be both they would that day hurl such a thunderbolt at the pocket of the defendant they would so fry skilled the incurable ulcers of the plaintiff, that all the household gods of the United Empire would hymn them to their mighty rest, and Hyman himself keep continual carnival at their amaranthine hearths. Gentlemen of the jury said the learned counsel in conclusion, I leave you with a broken heart in your hands, a broken heart, gentlemen, creation's masterpiece, flawed cracked, shivered to bits. See how the blood flows from it mark where its strings are cut and cut its delicate fibers violated its primitive aroma evaporated to all the winds of heaven. Make that heart your own, gentlemen, and say at how many pounds you value the demoniac damage. And oh, may your verdict still entitle you to the blissful confidence of that divine, purpureal sex, the fairest floral specimens of which I see before me. May their enfolding fragrance make sweet your daily bread, and when you die. From the tears of conjugal love, may time and sweet marjoram spring and blossom above your graves. Here the emotion of the court was unparalleled in the memory of the oldest attorney. Showers of tears fell from the gallery, so that there was a sudden demand for umbrellas. The learned counsel sat down, and, having wiped his eyes, ate a sandwich. There were other letters, but we have selected the least glowing. Mr. Charles Phillips then called his witnesses. Peter's looks examined, was employed by plaintiff recollected defendant coming to the van to propose a speculation, in which Madame Bonbon was to play with him. Defendant came very often when plaintiff was out. Once caught Madame Bonbon on defendant's knee. Once heard Madame Bonbon say, Bless your darling nose. Was sure it was defendant's nose. Was shocked at her levity. But consented to go for gin. Madame found the money. Had a glass myself. And drank their healths. Plaintiff never beat his wife. He couldn't. They were of very uneven habits, she was seven feet four, Plaintiff was four feet seven. Cross-examined by Mr. Adolphus, Plaintiff was dreadfully afflicted at infidelity of his wife, had become quite desperate never sober since, was never sober before. On first night of the news Plaintiff was quite delirious, took six plates of alamode beef, and two pots of porter. Sarah Pillowcase examined, was chambermaid at the tinderbox and flint, new cut had known defendant since she was a child also knew plaintiff's wife. They came together on the 1st of April, about 12 at night. Understood they had been in a private box at the Victoria with an order. They had 12 dozen of oysters for supper, and eight Welch rabbits. The lady found the money, thought, of course, they were married, or would rather have died than have served them. They made a hearty breakfast, the lady found the money. Cross-examined by Mr. Adolphus, would swear to the lady as she had once paid a shilling to see her. Here it was intimated by the learned judge that ladies might leave the court if they chose, it was evident, however, that no lady heard such intimation, as no lady stirred. Cross-examination continued, yes, would swear it, knew the obligation of an oath, and would swear it, this ended the case for the plaintiff. Mr. Adolphus addressed the court for the defendant. He had not the golden tongue number he was not blessed with the oratory of his learned friend. He would therefore confine himself to the common-sense view of the question. He was not talking to Arcadian shepherds he was very happy to see his own butcher in the jury box. But to men of business, if there had been any arts practiced, it was on the side of the plaintiff's wife. His client had visited the plaintiff out of pure compassion. The plaintiff's show was a failing concern, his client, with a benevolence which had marked his long career, wished to give him the benefit of his own attractions, joined to those of the woman. Well, the plaintiff knew the value of money, and therefore left his wife and the defendant to arrange the affair between them. Gentlemen of the jury, 
continued the learned counsel, it must appear to you, that on the part of the plaintiff this is not an affair of the heart, but a matter of the breeches pocket, he leaves his wife a fascinating, versatile creature with my client, I confess it, an acknowledged man of gallantry, well, the result is what was to be expected, my learned friend has dwelt, with his accustomed eloquence, on his client's broken heart, I will not speak of his heart, but I must say that the man who, bereaved of the partner of his bosom, can still eat six plates of alamode beef, must have a most excellent stomach, gentlemen, beware of giving heavy damages in this case, or otherwise you will unconsciously be the promoters of great immorality, this is no paradox, gentlemen, for I am credibly informed that if the man succeed in getting large damages, he will immediately take his wife home to his bosom and his van, and instead of exhibiting her, as he has hitherto done, for one penny, he will, on the strength of the notoriety of this trial, and as a man knowing the curiosity of society, immediately advance that penny to threepence. you will, therefore, consider your verdict, gentlemen, and give such moderate damages as will entirely mend the plaintiff's broken heart, the jury, without retiring from the box, returned a verdict of damages one farthing, we are credibly informed though the evidence was not adduced in court that Monsieur Bonbon first suspected his dishonor from his wife's hair papers, she had most negligently curled her tresses in the soft paper epistles of her inamorato, punches pencilings, mumbrex exi, the fates for the Polish and fate of the British poor, Charity begins at home, says, oh, 